Welcome back to the Segmentist Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Tuesday, February 8th, and we've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about the Saudi Tour, Valencia, Besege, a little Egan Bernal update, and then in today's Nerd Nugget, companies likely looking to reshore production, given the new realities of global shipping. I'm sure you've heard all sorts of things about that across many, many industries. We've got most of, well, is it the good, is it the best crew today? You can't say that anymore, is though. the best crew? Is it, is it just an above average crew? Average no, crew? It's, we're definitely below <laughs> average without Dane. We're slightly below average because we're still missing Dane. I was going to say, how would Dane feel about that? What if he's listening right now? <laughs> Dane he really elevates the level of this podcast. He does. And we miss him greatly, but he's not on again this week. We do have Abby. How are you? Yep. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and James. Hello. Welcome back to the show. And Shotty Dave. How are you? Before we get started today, some unfortunate news. Shotty Dave's mic just didn't work for seven minutes at the beginning of this episode. Uh, and we don't have a backup today, because that also failed. Shoddy, of course, said some absolutely brilliant and hilarious things in those first seven minutes, but you won't get to hear him. So, we've just kind of cut him out, so if you hear a weird cut, just assume that that was a fantastic shoddy joke, and around seven minutes, he'll come back, and then the episode will play as normal. Sorry about that. Since when is yep a response to how are you, Abby? <laughs> Since I, I mean, I know how are you is sort of like a, a, you know, you can kind of respond with almost anything, but yep. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's get into the show. We've had some bike racing since last week. The Saudi tour. Abby, what are the highlights? Yeah. I will run you through the most important talking points. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, we have some, we have some perhaps um, philosophical differences with government of Saudi Arabia. However, it's an interesting early season sort of classics tune-up. So we can talk about it anyway. Or it's Tell just, me what happened, Abby. just an early season classics tune-up period. You don't have to put interesting in there. Mm, yeah true <laughs> um yeah the race was really dominated by two teams Ladu Sudal took two stage victories with Caleb Ewan winning the first stage and Maxime Van Heels winning the fourth stage and taking the overall victory Dylan Grunewagen and his new bike exchange Jayco team was the other dominant team in the race they won two stages with Grunewagen really benefiting from his new lead-out train. Specifically, Luca Mezgetz uh, was instrumental in leading Grunewagen out, and the former Jumbo Visma rider spoke very highly of his new squad. I mean, one of the reasons why he wanted to leave is because he was a little bit sort of overshadowed by, by Jumbo Visma's other objectives, right? I mean, when you've got that many GC leaders on a team, and even now, Tom Dumoulin coming back into it, right? So you've got another one finding space for a full lead out was proving a bit difficult for, for Dylan Grunewagen. And, and he has been sort of the top sprinter uh, a number of times over the last couple of years. You know, I think that they, maybe him and Caleb Ewan have kind of traded that, that designation a couple different times, but he's been up there and he's been often without sort of full team support uh, still, still, you know, trying to to do his best in big bunch sprints. You know, move to Bike Exchange, obviously. They, they're not completely without GC riders, but that team, particularly in the last couple of years, has been much more about kind of sniping stage wins, and I think is probably a better a better fit for him. And like you said, the, the partnership with Luka Mezgec has appears to be off to a good start. You know, early season lead-out trains can often be a bit chaotic, uh, a bit bad, basically, not work particularly well. But it looked good. It looked good in the Saudi tour. Yeah, usually it takes a little bit of tuning up before a sprinter with a brand new sprint train can kind of 
figure out how to navigate three, two out of three sprint stages is a def good streak so far. And, and you're right, there was very little opportunity for him to have that kind of support on Yumbo Visma, which is why he cut his contract short by a year in order to join bike exchange Jayco. So to have these victories right off the bat with the team, it does make it seem like that decision to cut that contract was, was a good one. Yeah, it plays into Dane's entire who's going to be the top sprinter of the year storyline that we are going to watch on play throughout the season. Especially in that final stage, stage five, he really came from behind with no support whatsoever. He glided through the the sprint that was going on and his comeback was really incredible because unlike the riders he was sprinting against, against Bora and um, and Grunewagen, he didn't have any teammates around him at all. Doubly impressive. Yeah, I still, I like keeping an eye on the sort of the sprint train storyline, which sprinter is going to be dominant. But it is worth keeping in mind that this is very early days. This <laughs> is the first, first couple of races, first couple of races of the season. And, and like I said, it, it's it's a good sign that Grunewagen is, is able to pull this lead out together like, like, like they have, Bike Exchange has. But at the same time, you know, I'm interested to see when, when all these guys start to show up at the same races and, and what happens then. For sure, but the fact that Mark Cavendish won multiple stages of an early season race and went on to be the most dominant sprinter in the Tour de France, albeit with some riders not being present, was a good indication of how his season would go. I think another talking point with this is also that Deconic Quickstep, who had a very aggressive Saudi tour, walked away with nothing, and Gaviria really failed to be present in those sprints. I mean, he was there, but he obviously didn't win anything. So if you ain't first, you're last. That's true. He's, he's just never... Gaviria came on so fast a couple of years ago and has just never really been able to return to that that early... You know, like we were talking about him as, as another like Peter Sagan, right? Because he, he can climb a bit better than some of the other sprinters. He's a little bit more versatile. But he can still win bunch sprints, and it just hasn't hasn't quite played out as as I think we were expecting it to. Speaking of the Kona Quickstep, though, they did find some success at another early season race, Valenciana. Uh, Fabio Jakobsen won a couple stages over there. Abby, what else went down? Fabio Jakobsen won two stages at the Volta Valenciana. The other kind of huge talking point was from the race was stage three where Alexander Vlasov for Bora new new this year for Bora attacked in the final like one and a half kilometers of the stage it was a hilly mountain stage and with about three kilometers to go they took a right turn from a perfectly fine paved road onto a quite loose gravel section that lasted about a K and a bit, K and a half, maybe. It was a 10% grade from when they turned onto the gravel. So from the go, it was pretty steep. But what ended up happening was on that gravel section, Vlasov put pressure on Evenepoel and Evenepoel was dropped. And Vlasov rode away with the stage win, ended up taking the general classification overall. And it kind of led to this social media storm <laughs> of whether or not gravel should be included in stage races. Yeah, Johan Bernil of Johan Bernil fame. He he stepped into uh he stepped into the conversation a little bit and what he posted a photo on Twitter of the Tour de France from 1936 and then uh a road from Valenciana in 2022. They're both gravel roads. I I'm I'm not entirely sure if that made the argument that he was hoping for. One, because the Tour de France route in 1936 looks significantly rougher and worse than the Valenciana uh, road, which is just some packed gravel and doesn't look that bad at all, actually. And two, because it kind of shows that this has been part of road cycling for a very long time. And I, I, I'm not entirely clear how the images he chose support his argument. His argument is basically, I should, I should, I could just quote him. 
says, come on, people, road cycling's not a circus, and to all pro cyclists, you are not circus animals. So don't allow anyone to treat you like one. This Stuff like this makes no sense. I'm sure those in the know will agree. It does seem like the sort of old timers do think like this because if I remember, was it was a year ago, two, two years ago, maybe Patrick Lefebvre, when they changed the route of Paris tours to include some like dusty gravelly roads um, and actually make the race a lot more appealing from a, from a personal perspective and from what seemed to be on the internet, he had a right grumble as well. He said, oh, it's, it's not how cycling should be. Yeah. He's got a team that are quite happy to take on, the classics every year across the cobbles, which is arguably uh, a little bit more dangerous than the dusty roads of um, uh, east of Paris. I mean, this is my personal opinion here. Anything that makes road racing less of an exercise contest is a good thing in my mind. Uh, you know, the more tactics, the more skill. I think that those are all those are all good things. And frankly, we know that. Th- Stuff like this requires skill because we saw exactly what happened to Evenepoel, and it's not the first time that it's happened to him either. Let's think back to Stradivianchi, where he fell straight off the back as soon as things got rowdy, right? He has multiple times, and the bigger issue for him, if you'll recall, was at the Giro, where he was, well, he was a favorite for the Giro, and had a huge, huge problem with the gravel roads at the Giro d'Italia in 2021. It was stage 11, if I recall correctly, and he lost 208, two minutes and eight seconds to the leader that day. Yeah, this is proof that you need to be able to ride this stuff. You need to be able to ride a bit of gravel road. This is the second time that Eventipol has lost a bicycle race because he can't apparently ride on gravel. And I think that's it's a skill set just like anything else. It, you know, like time trialing, like riding on cobbles, like going around a corner. Anything that makes road cycling a little bit more, I don't know, technical, I think is a good thing. I feel like there's also a need for the tour in general to at least try and retain some level of relevance to everyday road riders. And seeing as how so many more road riders are doing gravel, then I think it's important an important thing for the race to include that sort of thing, uh, just because that's what people are doing. Exactly what James is saying is that people bang on about uh, bike brands pushing this break that that's the old like that it's bike bike brands with regards to technology that they're the ones that steer where they want things to go they're also now steering where like big races are going because of the uh, the demand for these gravel bikes yeah they're trying to keep things yeah big grand tours small races whatever it be should be able to throw a bit of gravel in there so the everyday people can go ah, get a bit more excited by it than just um a nicely paved road because yeah, road cycling uh, for the big brands is slowly dying in it and a short gravel sector is it's not like chucking you know roubaix cobbles into the tour france which they do on a pretty regular basis and which patrick lefevre and johan bernil don't really complain about i mean anybody if you if you look at the photos of lance valenciana and the, the road that they chose it's not like it's mountain biking right it's like a heavily packed dirt road it's not super, super loose. It's not full of holes. It's not, you know, you don't need anything more than a 25 or 28 millimeter tire. It's not the women's like said, it's Giro, Giro Rosa. It's not, the, it's not the Giro Donna where you like had to get off and walk up the hills. Well, and, and I would <laughs> yeah. also argue. It's just not that bad. <laughs> and, I, and I would also argue that we are, con- we are in a sport that is constantly complaining about a lack of sponsorship and a lack of financial support. And I would say that. Anything that the tour in particular can do to make that race more interesting and potentially attract more money without reverting or without resorting to, you know, some sort of real circus, like, like you're not having the, you're not having the, the, the people like, you know, jump through rings of fire or anything like that. Like you're, you're, you're going on a dirt road, but anything that you can do to make the race more interesting, particularly for spectators and for sponsors, then why would that be a bad thing? Like people should be celebrating that as long as it's not putting riders in danger. Can I can I argue against myself real quick, just to just to just to do it? You have to put on a different I mean, hat. It is, <laughs> it is it is road racing, right? Like 
tarmac at this point is is sort of the the baseline and i think that like the primary argument against it and i do understand this is that you're just you're bringing in an element of chance that normally road cycling does not have right now just that mere fact just an increased element of chance i think you could argue whether that's a good or a bad thing but i can see why if you are a gc leader if you're the leader of your team you don't want to lose the Tour de France or you don't want to lose Valenciana because you got a flat at the wrong moment because you were riding on gravel and you couldn't see anything in front of you because the rider's kicking up dust and you hit a rock, right? That's, that's just luck. Like, that's not skill. It's, it's, that's just luck. So I, I do understand that argument and I see that argument, but I just, I, at the same time, it's sport, right? Like, there's a ton of luck already, already in, in road racing and I think a little bit of extra... A little bit extra spice on the roads is, is not the worst thing in the world. Just jumping back to what Brunel tweeted, what we've got to remember is back in like the 20s when they were riding on the gravel roads, the bikes, the tyres were massive. They were big. They were big bulbous things. Then when the roads got nice and smooth, they went down to 19 mils in like the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up to 21. And then now bikes are capable of hitting the gravel stuff and being that safer. I wouldn't want to ride on gravel on a 19 mil tired bike from the from the 80s. So yeah, bike, the technology today is allowing the riders to do this, not just the, the, the skills that they've got as well. Because pros have always had awesome skills, but the bikes are allowing them to get there now as well. Yep. I think... Just kind of to like jump back to Evenepoel specifically and this specific patch of gravel, some things that kind of fueled this discussion. And that was, there was a quote from Evenepoel that was taken very much out of context and run with where he said the this specific patch of gravel was too much. But he was also kind of saying that it, having these gravel sections is special. It's special to have gravel in races and after the race had kind of ended and after I think Matteo Trentin came out and was like, we have Strada Bianca, we don't need gravel in stage races. And after all of this, Evenepoel eventually said, look, it, it was the climb. I need to work on the steep climbing as well. If you were watching the race, you could tell that he was getting dropped because he did not have the power on that climb. Bike handling may have played a role, but it wasn't the sole purpose that he did not win the Volta Valenciana. He just didn't have the legs on that final climb and Vlasov did. And so there was, there was this element of, uh, him saying something, it getting taken out of context and, and Belgian fans, latching onto that that gravel had ruined Evenepoel's chances of winning this early season race. <laughs> well, and like we said, he, he has had that issue before. And so it's not totally out of the out of the realm of of possible. And, and yeah, I mean, watching it, it kind of looked it looked like to me like a combination of sort of an inability to get power down to that rear wheel because it's relatively steep and loose, um, which is which is a skill, right? Like any anybody who's ever ridden a mountain bike will tell you that keeping traction in the rear wheel when things get nasty is is absolutely a skill set and it looked to me like he was struggling with that a little bit but man, I mean he just needs rides more gravel it's not a, it's not it's not rocket science you pull up on the handlebars and the rear wheel goes down like that, that, that's how it works and someone should probably tell him that for for next time they go and hit they go and hit some gravel anyway let's move on from the gravel discussion. Well, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this again because frankly, gravel's popping up all over the place. It's not for all gravel the reasons we talked new. about. It's not new. Like I don't It's not new at all. No. No, In no fact, but like, it's older than roads. It's older. I mean, race it is. Races <laughs> are seeing they're seeing like the success of Strata, which is, you know, people are talking about making it a monument and it's not even that old and and things like that. And they want a bit of that action. So it's not, not too surprising that other races are, are using these surfaces here. There were some other storylines from Valenciana. Uh, Fabio Jakobsen took two stage wins. It's good to see him continue on his road to recovery. It, I only caught one of those two stage wins, but it was, it was a, a, a pretty masterful display, actually. Uh, he lost his 
lead out, uh, which I think was Eve Lampert, and nonetheless was able to jump on or sort of jump around between trains. And when he when he hit out, it was just absolutely nobody could stay anywhere near him. I think he took it by two bike lengths or so and kind of a slow uphill drag. So Jakobsen looks really, really, really strong. And I'm expecting I'm expecting him to kind of play in play in those big bunch sprints throughout the year, I think. Yeah. The only other storyline from the race was the COVID positives that forced Yumbo Visma, DSM, and Bike Exchange Jaco to leave the race, as well as a couple Movistar riders who tested positive and left the race. Um, Movistar themselves remained in the race, but three teams leaving, something that I'm sure we'll see a lot more of in 2022. Um, but yeah, just goes to show that it's not not over. COVID? No, it's not over. The COVID is still here. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, and until until sort of regulations around teams having to leave because they have multiple positives, until those regulations start to lift, I think we are going to see a lot more of this. In fact, I'm I'm still amazed that we haven't we didn't see this in in previous years, like in the Tour de France, because I mean, frankly, cycling was yeah they they had a bubble at the Tour, but the the bubbles were not particularly strong. Pretty easy to pop those bubbles <laughs> <laughs> floating around, little soap bubbles. <laughs> you'd see you'd see. Anyway, we don't need to go to details, but they were not particularly strong bubbles. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. So I'm still amazed that this didn't happen at a higher profile event over the last couple of years. But I think we will continue to see it this year, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully, hopefully not in any big, massive races. Actually, speaking Abby, of COVID, this uh, this isn't in the run sheet, so I'm surprising you. But uh-oh. the news came Ooh. out uh, the morning of recording this podcast that Tade Pogacar had tested positive for COVID last week. And missed a little bit of training, had some mild symptoms, but is still on track for his season to go ahead as planned. So nothing too notable there, but it was interesting because this is just like the internet and social media. He hadn't posted his rides on Strava. So someone from Velo News got in touch with <laughs> got in touch with uh, his team and was like, he's not riding and they were like, let us double check what's going on. And then within a couple of hours, the team had released a statement that he'd tested positive, had quarantined, and was already back to training. It was, in, it, was it was a funny, it was a funny stream of events. But he's he's fine. He had <laughs> he had like mild symptoms, but he did he did have COVID, which means he has to go through all of the the UCI's medical protocol checks before he's allowed to race again. And his first race would be the UAE tour coming up February 20th that he won in 2021. But there's tons of time for him to do those medical checks. There's like lung and heart checks that are mandatory if you've tested positive before you can race. That's a good thing that they're making riders go through those. I mean, we have heard of, I mean, let alone long COVID, but also just sort of general heart issues and things like that post COVID. Uh, so yeah, a good thing that, that riders are getting are forced through checkups after they even have a mild case like this. Moving back to bike racing, the women's CV Femininas. Feminus, feminus, feminus. Maybe, maybe you just introduced this part, Abby. Yeah, the Vuelta <laughs> CV Feminus happened in Valencia, and it's the women's one-day event that happens the same day as the men's Valenciana ends. Uh, it was won by Marta Bastianelli, her first race with UAE. Well, the first race for UAE team ADQ, and they had a pretty good race. All in all, there was only four World Tour teams there, but UAE was really the most dominant team of the day. They were in every single move. They were super active, and then they won the sprint. It was a good, it was a good race. It was relatively uh, tame for the first women's race in Europe of 2022. Um, it's only a 1.1, so it's not a World Tour race or anything. But with all the men's, with three men's tours going on last week, at least we had one day of women's racing. It's pretty sparse early season 
is it not? I mean, what when, what what do we have to look forward to here? It is indeed a sparse early season. The ne- the next race for the women is the tour, the Valenciana Tour that comes up um, not next week, but the following week. It's a four day stage race, and other than that, we just kind of look forward to the to the World Tour races starting. Um, there's a bigger discussion about this going on on freewheeling that we kind of started in the last episode last week and we will dive into even more in the coming weeks about how the lack of racing in the early season is really affecting the growth of women's cycling if anyone wants to hear a bigger topic discussion about that you can head on over to freewheeling it's a stark contrast to the men because i saw a tweet somewhere today with somebody a photo a grumpy photo of somebody saying i can't believe there's no racing for three days Three days for men, yeah, and uh, a well, lot longer for the women. <laughs> yeah, they have they had the one day, and then you have like two weeks until you've got the next one. So, and just the one racing, like just it's not like there's three races going on at once. It's just the one. Mm. It is what it makes is. it a little bit difficult to. Yeah, it's I mean, it just makes it difficult to like. I don't know, race into form, I guess. Although that happens less and less these days in sort of the modern peloton, but yeah, it's still helpful to go get. Go get some speed work in an actual bike race before the big ones hit this spring, right? Which is interesting because we'll get into that topic in a second on the men's side. But it also means that for a race like Valenciana that used to be a race for kind of the smaller teams, a lot a lot of times smaller European teams and even American teams or British teams would come over to do Valenciana. But now because it's becoming so much more important to have a little bit of racing form in your legs before you start opening weekend, Omloop at Newsblad and Omloop at Hageland. It means that there's 13 of the 14 world tour races will be at Valenciana. And it kind of is this interesting situation where a lot of the smaller teams have literally no opportunities to go for wins anymore because there's so few races that the world tour teams have to show up to these races in order to fine tune their form before the races that really matter. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah. What it is. Well, let's chat through Besej real quick. And then I want to talk about this a little bit more because the sort of early season is changing. It is different than it used to be. And we can kind of talk about why, but Abby first, Besej. Yeah. What are the, what are the highlights? Etoile de Bessege was won by Benjamin Thomas. He won stage three. Actually, Kofidis had two stage wins with Brian Cocard taking stage two, another kind of uphilly, sprinty type stage, and ended with the time trial won by Philippe Agana with Mess Peterson getting second, which was pretty impressive. It was a good race for Kofidis in France. Great start. I've been able to say that in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, like two two stage wins in a week for Kofidis. That they what was the what was the span that they went without winning a world tour event? It was like a, a long time, but yeah, a la- year and a half or something like that. Last year they racked up <laughs> twelve wins and were one, two, three, four, five of them were down to Viviani. And a couple down to Laporte. So this is a good start to the season. A very good start to the season. I think it's because their new kit won the Cycling Tips kit competition. Amazing. It's a huge boost. Amazing. Considering, big mental boost. Considering it comes from um, Decathlon as well. It's Decathlon's own brand. Oh, gross. <laughs> I mean, no offense to Decathlon, but they're probably not actually making it. Probably. It's not unheard of. I'll say this. It's not unheard of for the brand that is on the kit to not be the brand that actually makes the, it, kit, the kit. It, it, could, it could be a bit of a sign because the last time Decathlon sponsored the team uh, with bikes, when it was the between Decathlon bikes that Coffee disused, um, they had a sterling season. It was either Decathlon or it was down to um, David Miller and the other riders that were on the team back then doing things that maybe they shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> I don't know. Shadi, you, didn't you test some decathlon shorts or something like that last year? They weren't too bad. No, Sterling and the winter jacket I tested, that was 50-year-old, was great as well for the spring, not for the winter, for the spring. Not warm enough for deep winter. But yeah, it's like, 
you can get actually get pretty decent clothes for lower prices at Decathlon these days, uh, should you have access to one, which I think most of our American listenership will not. But if you're over in Europe, they're they're kind of everywhere. There's Decathlons but, in America. They sponsor Phil Diamond. Like two. I know. Well, there's like sort of. Decathlon actually just announced that they're closing their two physical stores that they oh. had in the US. <laughs> but they're still gonna sell online in the US. Mm. Huh. There you go. If you want some cheap shorts that are pretty good and a cheap jacket that's pretty good, go check it out. Accidental decathlon ad. All right, <laughs> moving on. We did want to talk really briefly, and Abby, you've got this on the run sheet, so I know you have opinions on this, uh, about the sort of early season and the way that it's shifted and changed and is essentially more important than it used to be in some ways. Yeah, Shoddy kind of also spurred the putting this put it being put on the run sheet. But it was also interesting at Etoile de Bessege that Richard Carapaz crashed out trying to win on a descent. He just took a descent really hot and crashed out, and he doesn't have any significant injuries. But I don't think that that is something that we would see in an early season race three years ago that a top rider would be going for it that hard so early in the season with so much to come, just taking those kind of risks. Shoddy kind of put it in the group slack about why these early season races are gaining traction, why they're becoming more important for the riders. I think it's a super interesting discussion. I know Shoddy thinks it has to do with COVID. I disagree that it has to do with COVID, but I'll pass it over to Shoddy to take his rant of back in the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I find interesting. It's like the Etoile de Massage, Valenciana. These races have been around a long time. Uh, Valenciana, I think I'll just double check dates back to, well, first edition, 1929. Massage, I think, is like about the 70s. These races have been kept alive by local communities for many, many years since they, since the introduction of races like uh, the Tour Down Under, uh, Dubai Tour, now which, th- them sort of races that took the limelight from sort of, I suppose, 2000, 2005 onwards when them races started to become very big. And these races started dying. These used to be the races that all the pros used to turn up to early season, admittedly overweight and maybe not as fit as the guys are today, but they were they were races that eased the peloton into, into, into the racing and that's what kept them alive back then. The, the, the big names turned up even though they weren't fit. They then kind of started not dying, but the smaller teams would turn up. Your continental, pro-continental teams would turn up to these races. Uh for many years when you've had the editor down under on, for instance. And now what with COVID kicking in two years ago and travel not being on, all the races such as a tour down under not being on, these races have attracted big names and big names who want to hit out straight away. And it's elevated their status yet again. It's brought them back to, um, well, a level that they've never been at. It's a level of racing that they've never been at, but that the names have been there previously. And it's really nice to see it. And I, I hope it's something that continues because admittedly it's making this season longer again and more competitive at more races, but it's, it's awesome. I also think another thing is, is a lot of them are being televised. So yeah. Um, GCN Eurosport are putting these races on. I even noticed that um, Amazon Prime had Tour of Mallorca on in the UK. So it's, the fact that they're getting TV coverage as well is definitely elevating the races as well. I agree with you about the TV coverage. I think the TV coverage, um, it it's very easy to draw a parallel between the TV coverage and how much a race is, if a race is important enough, I think a lot of it has to do with how training is changing. I think Bradley Wiggins kind of pioneered this attitude where you could come into the season 
fit and retain that fitness throughout a really long period where back in the day you would really have to target something and peak and be really strong for one event. Now it's because training is evolving so much, you can go to training camps to get that race fitness with, with team training camps and, and motor pacing and stuff like that. Not that it's a new concept, but I think people are using it more lately than they were before, especially because of COVID where you couldn't get race fitness. And so you had to have other means of getting that, that fast, fast twitch kind of fast legs. I don't know. I can, I can, I can speak. I know I can speak. Yeah. Speed work. (laughs) And so I think that training is changing a lot and it means that when riders come to races, they're coming to races to win. So the races themselves are gaining in just how fast they are, how competitive they are, but also the top tier of the men's Peloton I mean, and the women's Peloton is just so far and above the rest of the sport. There's riders like Pogachar who are just seemingly unbeatable and, um, and Primoz Roglic as well. I mean, these riders are so good. And so when it comes to race smaller races like this, they're really the only kind of races that riders like Benjamin Thomas can go for. And so it means that riders who would want to win at a grand tour level. They're coming to races like this already race fit because they know that their chances of winning at the tour de France or even the Giro are a lot lower than they were a couple years ago. If that makes sense. No, that makes massive sense. I'm just either way. I'm just happy to see these races get the coverage that they are, the eyeballs on the race that they are because they're gorgeous races. They're awesome races. They're races that have been forgotten. Um, and a lot of them have got a lot of history that people don't realise. So, yeah, and whatever the reason is, it's great to see big names hitting it out at these races that I've always loved. And though they didn't have the big names at them for, I would say, probably 15 years, two decades, it's nice to see them back at and really hitting it out. Plus, they look gorgeous on TV. The nice spring or late winter sunshine down on the south of France, places like that. Oh, gorgeous. I mean, it is a, it is kind of a give and take though, right? Because a big part of the reason I think why there's so much more important now is just the fact that all these other races are gone. And that comes back to the sort of the globalization push behind cycling and, you know, pushing races into South America and pushing races into the Middle East and pushing races into Australia and things like that. You take those away and all of a sudden the races that were the traditional early season stuff that, that comes back to the fore, but you, you do, you miss out on, you know, Vuelta San Juan, which it was super popular locally and, and it's helping grow cycling and et cetera, et cetera. So it is a bit of a, it's a, it's a, it's a positive and a negative. I think it's, it's, it's absolutely positive for the races that we're talking about. It's positive for those regions. It's, it's, you know. Uh, I, I like them just like you do, Shadi. But at the same time, you know, the, the TDU being smaller this year is absolutely unfortunate as well. Like that, that the fact that it was not at the scale that it has been previously is is not good for, you know, for the cycling world in Australia and in Adelaide specifically. So, yeah, it's like I said, a bit of a give and take. Oh, I, I love the tour down under and... I have missed going there. I've missed watching the race in there. But it's just nice to see these get highlighted again. And I, I just hope that once they had a tour down under, gets back up and running in its January date again, that these teams see that these races are still viable, still a place where they can get get good wins, good points, and that they can balance the the calendar, I suppose, the, the, the riders' calendar by sending good teams to both the tour down under and these uh, European races as well. We also got to see just the beautifully heartwarming picture of the race winner riding down the mountain in his mother's jacket. <laughs> that was pretty lovely. That was pretty lovely. I think we're going to see some, some good things from Benjamin Thomas. More of his mother's wardrobe that he's going to wear throughout <laughs> the season, you think? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. 
Let's move on from that topic. We've got two quick injury updates. One, uh, well, one more serious than the other. I think you know exactly which ones I'm talking about. We'll start with the less serious. Matthew Vanderpoel back on his bike. Right, Abby? Uh, Matthew Vanderpoel is back on his bike after back issues and knee surgery. So it's a good step in Vanderpool's uh, attempt to get back to racing before the significant races have passed. However, more importantly, a Vanderpool won a gold medal at the Olympics. <laughs> I just think it's awesome. I was, I was wondering what, so the, the run sheet says Matteo Vanderpool Sorry. Back on his bike, but more importantly, write. winning Olympic golds. <laughs> Mateo? Which, I don't know what? why I wrote that. I'm sorry. Okay, I was like, was it Mateo? <laughs> did did Mate, Did someone name Mateo Vanderpool win? No, I just Olympic wrote it medal? too fast. <laughs> I, just, I just auto-corrected it for you as I was reading it. But uh, can you, wait, what? <laughs> what? Oh, no. what happened here? Okay, so for anybody who finds the Winter Olympics fire superior to the Summer Olympics and has been consuming them at all hours of the day since they started, uh, like myself, Nils Vanderpool from Sweden won the men's 5,000 meter speed skate. I just thought it was hilarious. Any any relation, do you know? They're definitely not related. Swedish versus, versus Dutch. I mean, I don't know. You never know. Although know. the Nils Vanderpool apparently is a um, ultra runner as well. Hmm. And of course dabbles in cycling hmm. because all the speed skaters do. But I thought that that would be a funny. run with thighs that big? <laughs> Don't know. The chafing would be just unreal. Right? <laughs> right? Unreal chafing. <laughs> but this was my way of talking about the Winter Olympics. <laughs> in a, Maybe they just in run a, with a very wide gate. Cycling podcast. <laughs> be, be so awkward. Seems, seems very be. inefficient. Uh, mm. All right, Abby. Just as an FYI, I, did, I just Googled this. So in the Netherlands, the, the surname Vanderpol is the 318th most popular surname. Estimated 4,782 people with that last name. I'm guessing they are not all related. Probably not. Uh, it just means pool. Pol means pool in English. So it's Matthew of the pool. From the pool? I don't know. I don't speak Dutch <laughs> at all. Like Van, Vander of the Probably. Of the pool? That would make sense. He should be a swimmer. I don't know what he's doing on a bike. He should be a swimmer. Yeah. I mean, the speed skating is closer, right? It's like on a pool, kind of. Yeah, sort of that's very pool. true. Yeah. Kaylee can Anyway. Egan <laughs> uh, <laughs> Bernal update. Abby, where are we at? I saw a picture of him standing up, not yeah. alone, you know, with some help, but still standing. Since we last recorded, he had a second surgery on his spine, more to towards his neck, uh, so farther up on the spine than the first surgery. But he did have that second surgery, and it was successful, and he has been discharged from the hospital. He's going to continue rehab and kind of getting back back to regular life. But the fact that he's out of the hospital after the news that we've had the last couple of weeks is definitely, definitely good news. Fantastic news. Yeah, we'll keep you updated on that one. What's, what's nice is that there's that photo that I think it was the hospital tweeted out where there's all the doctors around him and he's got the neck brace on and he's, you can see in his eyes and he's like got them cold coffee eyes, you know what I mean? Um, he doesn't look happy at all in that picture and he's got the neck brace on. And then if you go to his own account, he's tweeted out a picture and I'm guessing it's the same day. He's got the same socks, shorts and T-shirt on. So it's got to be the same day either that or he's, a, he's living life like a student and he's not got the neck brace on. So that's really nice to see that he's left hospital and taken it off. So let's hope that's not a thing that he has to wear all the time. Yep, we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on his recovery, but you know we talked a couple of weeks ago about the potential for for this being a, a very much life changing injury. I think that that potential still exists, but it looks less dire than it initially appeared. Right, a lot of the surgeries seem to have gone well. If he's already standing, that's a that's it's just fantastic news. So fingers crossed that wow that he can 
return to bike racing. That would be that would be pretty amazing. I'm just disappointed there's no um conspiracy theories around it is crashed like there was with Frooms. <laughs> oh, I hated those. So uh, you just wait, Shadi. You just them. wait. I'm sure they'll come out somewhere. Oh, my. Yeah. That was like one of the, I don't know, one of the few times, I guess it was semi-related to doping because one of the one of the theories around Froome was that it was like an excuse for taking a bunch of time away from racing because of a secret doping positive, which just to be clear is is wrong. That seems like good motivation for me to slam myself into a concrete wall too. <laughs> well, but did he, James? Oh, that's good. But did he? True. I mean, he did definitely they, got fake? better after the crash, so that's suspicious. Yeah, did, well, that, that's what that makes the whole thing just completely insane and like some like semi-reasonable people were were spouting that off and i it was just the whole thing was shocking to me it, it sort of makes you understand how people can dive down these jfk is still conspiracy alive theory yeah like like ridiculous <clears throat> political conspiracy theories QAnon insanity uh <laughs> puts that into perspective i guess uh <clears throat> excuse me cue the cue the attacking podcast comments I don't think we have a lot of QAnon followers that listen to the podcast. Um, we've definitely scared them off at this point. Yeah, I would hope so. I would hope that they've been scared off at this point. Um, if you do believe in QAnon. No, <laughs> move let's, on, move let's, on. Let's, let's, let's not go there. Let's not go there. Send me an email because I am intrigued by you. <laughs> and how weirdly your brain works uh all right let's get into let's get into today's nerd nugget nerd alert nerd alert nerd alert nerd james reshoring we're reshoring what are, what are, what's going on here what i mean we all know that the shipping situation right now is a disaster and we can't get bike parts and etc cetera, etc cetera. but is that leading to real changes in production well it seems to at least based on um some quotes that were in an article on Bloomberg recently. So um, Pira Mobility is an Austrian company that recently, well, they already own uh, like KTM motorcycles and Husqvarna, um, Husqvarna's electric bikes, uh, but they recently bought Felt, uh, US company Felt, and seemingly uh, mostly they're interested in their e-bike division. Um, but anyway, they, uh, Pira Mobility CEO uh, was on a conference call, uh, I guess this was last week now, and made it very clear that the cost of shipping, uh, which he says has gone up by 10 times what they were pre-pandemic, um, he was saying that they don't expect that that price will come down completely to where it was pre-pandemic ever again. And uh, it's basically making it untenable to manufacture bikes in Asia, actually to manufacture all bikes in Asia and then have them shipped globally to where they're actually sold. Um, so he is saying that uh, within three to five years or so, they will have European manufacturing to service that market, um, at least for uh, not for high end bikes, because I guess that is still reasonably cost effective to do it the way it's been done. Um, but he's saying that they will have continental production is what he's describing it in something like three to five years for electric bikes. Um, but the bigger news is that he is claiming that most of the other big brands are also going to be following suit. Uh, and he specifically named Specialized, Giant, and Cube, although you'd have to think that other brands will be included in that list as well. Well, well, Bianchi, 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 Bianchi. Bianchi, Bianchi. <laughs> they, they've already uh, stated that they're bringing their manufacturing back to Europe, for, especially for the carbon bikes as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, especially for Bianchi, because they've never manufactured carbon bikes in, in Europe ever. Um, so the fact that they are opening up this massive facility and um, have very openly stated that they're going to be manufacturing carbon bikes in Europe is, is quite notable. Um, I mean, they, I've written about various smaller companies that have followed or that, that have adopted this, this, uh, this setup of like having, kind of having more local production. And it's always been a positive, it's always been an, an, a, a, a desirable feature to have your production be closer to where your R&D is happening, especially to where these things are sold anyway. Uh, there's so many benefits to that aside from just, um, aside from cost. But now that the shipping issue has cropped off over the last couple of years, then 
that apparently is prompting more companies to look at bringing manufacturing closer to, well, I guess, kind of like making everything a little bit more local, which I think would be a big benefit in a lot of ways. So um, I'm particularly curious to see how this affects uh, R&D in general, because it really could accelerate the development process. Even before the uh, the pandemic and the, the shipping crisis, there was I suppose it was the clothing brands, the European clothing brands that sort of had a, I suppose, a 50-50 split of items being made in Europe. You're, look, you're looking at a lot of, a, I suppose, um, sportful Castelli clothing. It says, I think it was Bulgaria was a, a place where a lot of them were made. And speaking to a few of the clothing brands, it seemed that the, they were all trying to bring uh, production back into Europe as well. And one of the biggest problems with business in general is just uncertainty. And if you, if you know that your stuff will cost more to produce, but you also have a, lar- a higher degree of confidence that you'll be able to get those goods to where they need to go because you can just stick them on a truck as opposed to sticking them on a boat and maybe that boat will get there and maybe you'll be able to get a container to put that stuff in a boat and so on and so forth, then it, it seems the certainty of paying a little bit more beats the uncertainty of not getting stuff. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing to me is the, is the projection here, right? That, that, that it's not going to meaningfully improve in years because the, the, you know, these, these companies wouldn't be making these decisions if 18 months from now things are back to normal. But more and more companies are saying, we don't think that's going to happen, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I, I, it, I guess it's a little bit unfortunate for the end consumer as prices are likely to go up, uh, you know, whether that increase in price comes from increased production cost or from increased shipping costs, price is going to go up either way. But uh, there's also lots of other benefits like you're talking about to, to essentially reshoring uh, production. So something else to keep an eye on. All right, that's, that's it for today's show. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Another episode of the Cycling Tips podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.